This is Jeffrey Lickman for another podcast for Beyond the Legal Limit. I want to thank you for tuning in today, and I've been receiving a ton of positive feedback about the podcast. I appreciate it. I think for the most part, people are happy to hear someone who's willing to actually speak the truth about some difficult and politically incorrect subjects. I want to say hello, give a shout out to a fan named Sam Ragoni, who is a big fan. I appreciate you, Sam, for listening in every week. In this episode, I want to speak about a case that I took on right before the pandemic sort of ended the world. I had a fellow who came in who had been charged with manslaughter in late 2016 due to his driving of a car under the influence of drugs in upstate New York on a highway. He was on all sorts of uh, painkillers, oxycodone, etc. And the crash resulted in him swerving into a tractor trailer and killing his passenger, nearly decapitating his passenger, a 36-year-old woman. And he was facing 15 years in prison for the manslaughter charge. Now, the case had languished for years, obviously, because if he had had this accident in late 2016, and I came in in the beginning of 2020, the government hadn't indicted it for a while. They had arrested him, but in order to go forward formally with charges, they had to reach an indictment. And they and the defense lawyer that uh, the client had at the time kept on agreeing to put things off. The defense lawyer thought, well, look, as long as the guy's not formally charged, I guess that's good, and I'll just keep on delaying things, hoping the case will go away. They were offering five years in jail at this time, which um, was not the worst uh, deal because, look, if you're drunk driving or driving under the influence of drugs, five years when someone actually dies is not really such a bad uh, sentence. It's really not. It's actually not the worst deal. I've seen cases in which there have been DUIs and people have died uh, five years, 10 years, even up to 20 years in cases like that. And as I said, there was a decision made early on by the original lawyer to basically just do nothing, just wait it out, hope that it goes away. And I can't say, again, this is necessarily the worst strategy. I've done this in a lot of cases before where there's an investigation going on. Once the case actually becomes uh, either charged, even if it's not indicted and it's just charged, in my view, the case is most likely not going away. So you need to really get on it. Uh, the sleeping dogs mentality is not a great strategy once there's a charge because how do you sleep at night knowing that you've got prosecutors that are any day going to indict you and want five years in jail for you? And the client came to me troubled that he felt that his lawyer wasn't doing anything and he felt that we needed to be more proactive, which as I said, I agreed. And it's important when you have a case until it's over, until you can get rid of it, you got to do everything you can to get rid of it. You can't just you have to be, you know, the, the, the old saying is that, do you want to be the fly or do you want to be the windshield? You don't simply just wait to get splattered on the windshield. You got you to gotta really be aggressive. And that's the kind of lawyer I am. Now, I interviewed the defendant at some length and found out some pretty extraordinary stuff. He wasn't just some drug addict or drunk who selfishly drove under the influence and got his passenger killed. He had been in a very bad motorcycle accident himself five years before the fatal accident in 2011. And he suffered some very bad injuries to his neck and was prescribed a, a monthly quantity of oxycodone. Before this accident, my client had never been prescribed any regular medication except Adderall for his ADHD, which he had been diagnosed uh, with as a kid. The next year, um, the client began seeing a different doctor who prescribed a much higher quantity of Adderall and oxycodone than he had been receiving with the first doctor. And in a very short period of time, the client became addicted to what's an opioid, oxycodone. As many Americans, as we know, have become addicted to this very dangerous classification of drug. But the doctor kept prescribing him more and more to make money and was really uh, not doing the right thing, was just basically getting paid to help addicts get more of these pills. And he wasn't just doing it with my client, he was doing it with other patients as well. Then a few months before the fatal accident 
and years after my client uh, had gotten addicted to oxycodone, law enforcement gets involved and initiates an investigation into the doctor's medical practice in New Jersey. Undercover detectives, they posed as new patients. They visited the office and without even being evaluated by the doctor, received prescriptions for Xanax, Adderall, oxycodone, and other controlled substances in exchange for cash. The investigation also revealed that other unlicensed individuals, including the doctor's wife, would routinely see the doctor's patients for him and issue prescriptions on these blank prescription pads that had the doctor's signature on there, you know, without even anything being written on them. And the doctor ended up uh, himself having to go to a rehab facility because he was addicted to, uh, to drugs, which was comical because while he was there, he continued to sign numerous blank prescriptions for his wife to allow his wife to dispense to his patients in order to get paid, get money for opioids and other drugs. I mean, it's ridiculous. Eventually, the doctor had his license suspended, and uh, it was actually after uh, my client had his fatal accident. And while he was in that accident, he was obviously addicted to the opioids that the, this doctor had given him. The doctor then got arrested, and he was charged with numerous accounts pertaining to possession and distributing controlled dangerous substances. Now, what was interesting was that after the accident, immediately after, and as I said, the passenger in the car was dead. That was just right after when the accident occurred. My client had a pretty massive head injury and he needed treatment for it. But he was wandering around in a daze at the scene of the accident after he was pulled from the car by the police. And all he cared about was getting his bag of pills that he had with him. He was that addicted. He was that messed up from the addiction. And I felt that this was a pretty strong bit of mitigation because our point was that my client was himself a victim of a crime. How can the prosecutors want to crush my client with a five-year deal himself when he was a victim of an unscrupulous doctor and it was that victimization that led to the death of this woman? And I thought it was, was pretty clear. And this wasn't a minor crime. I mean, doctors go to prison for years for giving out uh, bogus prescriptions uh, for opioids, as many of their patients ultimately end up overdosing and even dying. I mean, it's true. I've even had a case like that where a doctor killed, I think, three patients and got six years in prison by overprescribing medication for cash. Had this case been in New York City, I felt that it would end up with either no charges or no prison at the very least. But upstate New York, which is where this case was, is a completely different animal. It's like you're not in any liberal area like New York City. You might as well be in Iowa. It's much more conservative. They're much tougher on crime. And they're not inclined necessarily to go along with what I thought was a pretty fair argument. How do you put the victim of a crime himself if this doctor hadn't pled guilty my client would have been marched in front of a, a jury as a victim in that doctor's criminal case. And now he's a victim in one instance, but now you're claiming he's the bad guy in another because of something that he had no control over due to his addiction? I thought it was pretty clear. But as I said, you know, upstate New York, they don't necessarily go along with that at all. But I felt that it was worth a shot. After I learned all this, I quickly contact the prosecutor and let her know that we wanted to submit what's called a pre-plea like mitigation letter explaining why our client didn't deserve five years in jail and that there were mitigating circumstances due to, as I said, his being victimized himself, which led to the addiction, which led to the accident, which led to the death of this woman. And I was surprised that the prior lawyer hadn't attacked the case like this. It was a legitimate defense, or it was least very persuasive mitigation. And there was even other mitigation, and I wasn't looking to demonize the victim, and you've got to be careful in a situation like this, because even if you think the victim might have had something to do with the crime, or at least her circumstances herself, prosecutors sometimes become very protective over their victims, and you've got to be careful not to do the so-called blame the victim routine. But the truth is, she was a crazy stalker of my client, and I wasn't just making this up. But there had been numerous police incidents involving her with him. <clears throat> they had been in a relationship. He was trying to break up with her. And she simply 
wouldn't allow it. She would send them pictures of, of a room with balloons with their names on it and saying that they were engaged with, it was crazy shit. She wouldn't stop writing them. She was telling people they were engaged. She had even assaulted him. She once assaulted him with a knife. The police, as I said, had been called numerous times. We had all these police reports. And, and she also had threatened suicide, which we could document. It was our position that when the accident occurred, she had grabbed the wheel of the car and turned it um, into the, the tra- tractor trailer that was in front of them. And who could argue otherwise? What other victim, or excuse me, what other witness was there that could have said otherwise? So it was worth a shot to throw it on as uh, extra mitigation. And finally, her other point of mitigation is that it had been three years since the accident occurred, over three years, and when I took over. And during that time, he had kicked his addiction. He put together a successful business career and family. And, you know, how are you going to put him in jail now, three and a half years later, when he's kicked the addiction, he's gotten his life together. It's a very fragile situation when you're an addict. And the fact that he's uh, shown that he can live a law-abiding life, putting him in jail for five years, I mean, what is that going to do to help uh, him? What's that going to do to help society? It's not going to do a thing. And as a victim of a crime himself, he deserved the chance to put his life back together. So we threw all that in in a mitigation letter. And the prosecutor, to her credit, was very fair. And she said, look, I can't get rid of the case completely, but I can give you a a sentence which would call for four months in prison at a local facility. It'd be a very easy facility for him to do the short period of time. It wouldn't destroy his life. And then he could get back out to his family and and get on with it. But he said, look, you know, uh, I have to get permission from the victim's family. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And she says to me, look, you know, this is what it is. We have to at least run it by them. And you know, otherwise they're going to get pissed and we have to at least try with them. It's a small community. And naturally, as you can imagine, uh, they were against it and they were already threatening to go after my client for money and getting him a sweetheart deal was not going to help them get the money, which clearly they wanted. So anyway, we, the prosecutor felt that she could take care of that and uh, get that deal through. And it would be all's, all's well that ends well, right? Well, wrong. The prosecutor could not get the family to agree to the four months in prison. And at the last moment, she told us that. And she said, look, I'll agree to a plea deal, but I've got to cap the number at one year. Not five that it was originally, but one year. And in addition to make things a little harder, why should anything be easy in my life? The judge that we had, who was considered to be favorable to us, left the bench and we had a new judge in and he was less inclined to give us what we wanted. So I really had to just go in there at the sentencing and, you know, fight. And basically I submitted the, the pre plea mitigation letter. I turned it into a sentencing letter and I thought that it all made sense. Like, how are you going to put this victim in jail and pretend that, you know, he's a bad guy? Well, we uh, ended up having the sentencing uh, on Zoom because it was now in the throes of the pandemic. And uh, the judge listened. The prosecutor fought for a year in prison, knowing that the victim's family was on the Zoom watching all of it. Uh, but the judge ultimately relented. I had said, look, you know, uh, we had agreed to a deal. The prosecutor pulled it. It was four months. And the judge, to his credit, said, fine, I'm going to give you the four months. And, and that was that. And then it was an all, all's well that ends well. Now, I guess the point of me bringing this up is that, you know, there are different ways for lawyers to see how to handle a case like this. If you simply did nothing, didn't investigate the defendant's past, his, his addiction, all of that, if you didn't document it, and we documented it fully, you know, who's to say that eventually you lose that opportunity because some of the evidence isn't there, it disappears, it can't be had, and you end up taking a shot that the case will simply disappear. But what ends up happening is the prosecutors are very serious. And although they don't get the five years, they might get three. So a lot of times you really have to use your lawyer's common sense, his judgment, and hope that it's right. And sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's not. And that's oftentimes what makes the difference between 
a good defense lawyer and a shitty defense lawyer is you have to hope that the lawyer that you get has the common sense and the judgment to do the right thing. And in this case, the client, as I said, spent only a few months in prison, was thrilled with the result, got back to his family, and is now thriving and is fine. Now, one interesting thing about this case I, I should mention is that in one of the appearances in court, there was a lull during the pandemic where we were able to have in-court appearances. I, I drove there for the very brief appearance. It was a ridiculously short appearance and a waste of time. I remember being pissed as I was driving up that it was unnecessary. And on the way back, I'm driving down the very highway where the fatal accident occurred. It was a, a long stretch of highway. And all of a sudden, a dog appears in the middle of the highway, just wandering a big dog. Obviously, had gotten away off a leash or out a door from someone's home and was just walking across the highway. Now, it wasn't a really busy highway. As I said, it was upstate New York. So everybody stopped, uh, screeched their brakes to stop to make sure not to hit the dog, make sure he was okay, and let him walk across the highway. And everybody stopped except for one person which was the person, the driver behind me, who slammed into the back of my car at like 60 miles an hour while I was stopped. And I was very lucky that I myself wasn't killed during that accident. My car was very, very badly damaged. I had some neck and some upper back issues, but I was pretty much okay. I wasn't paralyzed. I wasn't dead. And to me, that's sort of, you know, that's a win-win. A I was a little goofy after uh, getting hit, <clears throat> but nothing that big of a deal that driver was actually charged with a crime and I ended up being okay. So it was an all's well that ends well for me as well. But in a case charging manslaughter with a vehicle, I was almost killed myself on the same stretch of highway, which is pretty weird if you ask me. Now, if I can uh, get to another area today and we'll talk a little bit about some current events and the, the shortage of baby formula in America is one of the big stories in America this week, as well as the, uh, the mass shooting in Buffalo. I think the mass shooting in Buffalo, I'm probably going to talk about that on my WOR appearance on iHeartRadio. You can find it. It's Monday mornings at 7.05 a.m. WOR Radio, the Len Berman and Michael Riedel show, and you can hear about that. But I have some pretty strong thoughts about crazy kids evidencing insanity in school, and you just let them have access to guns. I don't think that passing more stringent gun laws are going to make a difference. You have to pass more stringent parenting laws. People that are legal gun owners shouldn't have to suffer for parents that are letting their kids have access to guns when they're clearly batshit crazy. But back to the, the shortage of baby formula in America, it's really symptomatic of a much, much bigger problem. It's bad enough when supply chain issues caused shortages in lumber. And chicken, semiconductors, uh, getting new cars, getting used cars, electronic, toys, jewelry, glass, aluminum, you name it, there's been supply chain issues. Uh, the stuff that you could, could get would go up massively in price. Coffee prices are at an all-time high with an increase of like 100% over the last uh, year. Beef, pork, uh, chicken, as I said, they're up 26, 19, and 15% respectively. Strawberries in the U.S. are also in short supply. In the past year, airfare is up 33%. Eggs are up 23%. Bacon is up 18%. Gasoline is up 44%. And America just keeps taking it. Uh, inflation is going bonkers as well. It's up 11% over the past year. It's already at a ridiculously high number, the highest in decades. And in April alone, inflation was up half a percentage point. But, you know, now we have to learn after all that, that wasn't bad enough. We have to learn that parents can't get baby formula for their infants. I mean, how utterly bonkers is that in America? This isn't some third world shithole of country. This is America. This is the wealthiest country on earth. And we can't get baby formula. I mean, how utterly nuts is that? And it was a, a very big funny when Jen Psaki, and she's the that repulsive freak of the, the White House press secretary, she was making jokes about the supply chain crisis affecting businesses and consumers across the country, saying that it was a tragedy that some people might have to wait longer 
for their treadmill to arrive. She said, quote, the tragedy of the treadmill that's delayed. She said that last October, like it was a big joke. At least talk to us like we're not idiots. I understand that she's representing the president, but you know, maybe if you can be honest, it would help. Lying to us and making us feel dumb for complaining about supply chain issues, which clearly haven't come close to going away, well, I find that pretty disgusting. One reporter had asked her why President Biden hadn't act, acted sooner to deal with the crisis and that why they hadn't anticipated the problem. She said, well, that's actually not true. The president formed a task force at the very beginning of his administration to deal with supply chain issues. We've been focusing on the ports. This is last October. So this is already, they're already in office, you know, 10 months. We're focusing on the ports and issues at the ports and, and the, the leaders at the ports will tell you that they've seen an increase in volume dramatically as it relates to last year, 20, 30% increase in volume. This is what she's telling us months before the baby formula issue. <clears throat> well, you know, now it's not a joke anymore. You can't joke about it. It's now seven months later. We're clearly in much worse shape. And Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, still doesn't seem to think it's a big deal. Nobody seems to think it's that big of a deal in the White House. And again, I'm not speaking as a, you know, a pundit or as an advocate. I'm just speaking objectively as the truth. And I, God knows I've said enough bad stuff about uh, Trump. So there's no reason why I can't, you know, call it out as to what it is with Biden. She was asked recently. What's a parent to do when they don't have access to formula you know, or breast milk? What are they supposed to do? Is there a hotline they can call or should they head to the hospital? And Jen Psaki said, I would say that there are important, these are important public health questions, but what I can convey to all of you is that we're doing all we can to address that concern, which is taking every step we can to ensure there is supply on store shelves, and we have increased the supply over the last four weeks. She was then asked which government agency should uh, such questions go to and, you know, who should be asked about this and what should parents do if they can't find formula? And Jen Psaki said, didn't name an agency. She said, well, we encourage parents who have concerns about their child's health or well-being to call their doctor. Like, you think calling your doctor about having no baby formula, what, what do they have formula there? I mean, I just, I'm amazed, you know, you, you can't, it's not like this is like not having water, you know, or not having soda or not having even gasoline. These are babies that need this formula to not just live, but to thrive. And if you don't have the formula, that's a serious problem. That's not a joke. That's not like not, uh, it's not the same as like not getting your second key on your new car because the semiconductor chip wasn't available from China yet. And you're probably thinking, you know, this must be a big surprise to the administration. You know, a sudden surprise because they're completely caught flat-footed. In February, however, Abbott Nutrition, which is one of the largest suppliers of baby formula in the United States, they recalled several, several brands of the formula after federal officials investigated uh, the fact that four babies who suffered bacterial infections from baby formula that was made at the Abbott uh, factory in Michigan. They started the investigation then, and Jen Psaki claimed that the formula killed two babies. And this, is, this occurred in February, according you know, to her. But Abbott comes out the other day and says, no babies died from their formula. And they said, quote, a comprehensive investigation by Abbott, the FDA, the CDC, found no evidence that our formulas caused infant illnesses. The CDC concluded its investigation with no findings of a link between our formulas and infant illnesses. This is just mid-May now. This is over three months after the shortage occurred. So three months later, the White House is basically lying about what killed these babies, which caused the shutdown of the major producer of baby formula in America. We're three, three and a half months later, and we're no further along either figuring out what happened or what we're going to do about it. And as I said, Abbott's not even open now, all these months later. The deaths occurred in February. How long does it take to figure out the problem? The CDC, the FDA, they can't get it together and open this factory again. 
And Biden, you know, respectfully, come on. I mean, again, I'm not just criticizing the guy because he's an imbecile who shits in his pants. He's doing all that he can to raise taxes on the wealthy. He's trying to ram through his massive spending packages, keep the borders open to get as many illegals settled into red states. And yet inflation is through the roof. Babies can't get milk. And there's no one to blame but the administration, but they won't accept any responsibility for it. And you can laugh all you want about Trump being an idiot, and he is a gigantic imbecile. But for God's sakes, babies were fed during his time in office. I don't think that's asking all that much. That if you elect a president in the United States, in this great country, babies should be able to eat. And as I said, Abbott claims they're still weeks from opening and months away from getting formula onto the shelves. The Democrats who claim they care so much about blacks and the poor, you know, that's the stuff that we've been told for decades. Well, guess what? Poor families are struggling from the shortage, too, because the remaining baby formula suppliers have caused a price gouge, as you can guess. They're raising the prices on whatever formula is left. So the poor people aren't getting uh, the formula. Some of it's being sold on eBay at ridiculous prices. And black infants are disproportionately impacted as only 76% are ever breastfed compared to the national average of 84% compared to, excuse me, per the CDC. So the blacks and the poor are getting screwed by this administration with regard to baby formula for their, their babies. This is like their main support area. And if you think that things are going to improve when the new press secretary starts, we've got a new one. Jen Psaki is going, of course, where she belongs, to MSNBC. We've got a new one, this Corrine Jean-Pierre. Listen, you have, to be a good liberal, you got to have at least two last names. You can't just have one. She's gay. Uh, she's black. She hates Jews. She's got everything a liberal, a leftist would want. I mean, you've checks all the boxes. This is what she's concerned about. In her tweets between 2015 and 2020, there were 57 instances where she accused people, policies, ideas, or words of being racist. 57 times. And she accused people and ideas that she was opposed to as racist at least 43 times in TV appearances, too. Basically, all she does is say, racist, racist. So other than hating Israel and Jews, she thinks everything else is racist. Those are the main things that she talks about. Even the southern border wall. The southern border, border wall that was being built, that's racist. Did you know that? The wall keeps out illegals. It keeps out criminals. It was going to keep out the unvaccinated. It's racist. Don't you get it? Last week on Air Force One, she was questioned by reporters about the baby formula shortage. And she said, on baby formula, there have been severe shortages throughout much of the country over many weeks and months. But particularly the last couple of weeks, what is the administration doing? This was a question put to her. What can you do? A reporter asked. Her answer was completely meaningless, without meaning, void of any meaning. Quote, that's something certainly we've been tracking. Whatever the fuck that means. Ensuring that infant formula is safe and available for families across the country is a top priority for the White House and this administration. Such a top priority that we're months into the shortage and it's not getting any better. We know that Abbott's voluntary recall of infant formula products have led to some Americans being unable to access other critical medical food supply. This is an urgent issue that the FDA and the White House are working 24-7 to address, she said, 24-7. I'm surprised she didn't say 25-8, 24-7. It's so urgent that 43% of all baby formula is out of stock, which is double uh, the shortage of what existed in February. That's how, how competent this administration is. So a reporter followed up, who was running point on the formula issue at the White House? You mentioned that the White House inf is involved. That's fair. The White House is working on this 24-7. So who is the main person who's dealing with it? I would think that when there's a shortage of baby formula in America where kids are unable to eat, I don't think there's anything that's really more important except maybe avoiding World War III. Well, this is her response. At the White House, I don't know, she said, while laughing. Like, is this a fucking joke to you? 
I can find out for you and get you a person who is running point. That's what she said. Of course, she never did. If this thing, this beast was a mother, do you think she'd think it was funny? She claims the White House is all over it, but she can't even tell you who's actually in charge of the problem? Does anyone even talk about this in the White House? Do they even talk about this? How could this not be the only thing that they should be working on is getting uh, this factory back online and producing formula? Are kids going to die from this? Anyway, you know where there's plenty of formula, plenty of baby formula at the border? For the illegals who are streaming in, a Florida congresswoman posted a video online that a border agent sent her with photos of deliveries of the baby formula, and the shelves are all stocked at this Ursula processing facility, processing of the illegals, in McAllen, Texas. Thousands are being housed, they're processed, and then, of course, they're released. The border agent told her, quote, you would not believe the shipment I just brought in. This is a border patrol agent who has been doing it for 30 years, and he said he's never seen anything like this. He's a grandfather, and he's saying that his own grandchildren can't get baby formula, but the illegals have all they need. And in case you, you still think that Biden and this leftist administration puts America first, well, they're giving another $40 billion to the Ukraine. $40 billion. I don't know, maybe that money could go uh, to ensuring that baby formula is made. Somehow I think that if you had $40 billion, you could probably buy a lot of workers to make the baby formula, to get the product onto the shelves and make sure that the babies are fed. But nope, illegals and the Ukraine come first in this country in a leftist administration. It's very weird. And if you're okay with that, then you must be some kind of idiot liberal because there's really no other explanation. At what point do you think that the last uh, holdouts admit that Joe Biden has just been an abject failure? His overall approval rating is like, I don't know, 30%. His approval rating with independence is now 63% against him to 32% for him. That's independence. Those are people that are in the middle. Men are against him 60 to 34, women 53 to 42. Women are dumb. 18 to 34-year-olds, 60 to 29% are against them. White people, 64% to 32%. The only people who are still favoring him are whites with college degrees, which is shocking, and that's barely 48 to 47%. Those are all obviously the liberal white guilters. Non-whites are for him 50 to 44%, which is hilarious as he's you know killing minorities and low-income people. I mean, look at inflation. It's a it's basically a regressive tax. Those are the people that are paying for it. But this is the best. Democrats favor Biden with 81% to 12% against him. How stunning is that? 81% of Democrats think he's doing a good job? I'll ask you this. Tell me one thing, one, that's better off under Biden than we were with Trump. Not a single thing. Now, I get the fact that Trump was crazy and was making everybody nuts and feeling very unstable. You'd wake up with that stomach ache in the morning waiting for him to do something stupid. And usually by 8.15, you, you know, you got it. You got exactly what you were expecting. But Biden is, is not providing that stability. He doesn't care at all about the destruction that he's causing in the country. I just think it's because he's demented. He's not worrying about inflation. He's put out a tweet the other day saying that corporations not paying enough income taxes is the cause of inflation. It's got nothing to do with it. Inflation is caused by the dollar being valued less. And that's because we are spending too much money and producing not enough to back up that spending. They have nothing to do with each other. If you had the corporations to pay more in taxes, you're just going to use that money and spend it on other shit and probably lower the value of the dollar even more. Rampant spending is what causes inflation. And Biden is just so concerned about getting his leftist agenda jammed through. I don't think he cares at all what he's doing to America. And, you know, as I said, the only reason he was elected is because he wasn't Trump. They just assumed that he wouldn't be as crazy as Trump. But like I said, instead of being the calm leader that people expected, he's done all that he can uh, to make this the most far left presidency ever. He's pitting Americans against each other, despite him claiming he would never do that. And I think the country's had enough, you know, not that anybody wants the insanity of Trump, 
but at least he wasn't destroying the country. And you don't have to say that you're for Biden just because you're against Trump. You can be against Biden and be against Trump also. Believe me, you can do that in America. Anyway, another topic, and and I, I keep bringing this up. It's been like, I think, the third week in a row. But everything that I've said about this topic, it, it keeps coming true every week. And it's important to look at the impact on the world. I'm going to explain your thinking, what is this guy talking about? And it's basically what I've said is that when you placate evil, when you appease evil, bad things usually happen. I've said that. The world is on fire right now with the continued war overseas. You read all about it in the news. Just this week, some really horrible violence is continuing. The images that we're seeing are shocking, and the Democrats are calling for the United States to have no more contact with the country that's responsible for the, the violence and for the abuse of a, of a vulnerable people. So weak and unable to defend themselves um, against such an overwhelming evil power. You still don't know what I'm talking about. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. Alexandra Cortez uh, O Jimenez, they're all shrieking. Corey Bush, that leftist congresswoman from St. Louis who stuffs uh, Oreos and Twinkies down her gullet 24-7, she's practically calling for America to put troops on the ground to stop a genocide that's occurring. You know, naturally, I'm not speaking about the daily massacres going on in the Ukraine by Russian troops. You'd think that's what I'm speaking about, but I'm not. I'm talking about the fact that a Palestinian reporter for Al Jazeera was killed by a bullet in the middle of a a battle zone in Jenin, which is uh, an utter wasp nest of Palestinian terrorists in the shithole that is the West Bank, which is their home. No one knows who fired this fatal shot, which killed this reporter, you know, because we had armed terrorists who were shooting like lunatics. They're not trained. And uh, they're going against the Israeli defense forces who were trying to stop the terrorists. And they were forced to enter into Jenin and deal with the terrorism there. And all the gunmen there were walking around the streets armed with automatic rifles openly because there's no government in the West Bank. The Palestinians have no government that will stop terrorists from walking around with loaded automatic weapons. Think how nuts that is. And, you know, my view on this is, and I'm going a little bit afield here, if Palestinians want to run around with automatic rifles and kill each other, I don't give a shit. They do that when they can't kill Israelis. They're in the midst of a, I think it's like a 15-year civil war now. Uh, You've got one terror group, Hamas, and the other terror group, the PLO. Now, for 15 years, as I said, they're trying to kill each other whenever they can. If they were just limited to running around killing each other, that would sort of be a good thing. Uh, for you know the civilized world because they're both uh, two sets of uh, of insane terrorists but alas uh, the palestinians refuse to just kill each other and they need to kill israelis and kill their neighbors whatever they can they've refused israel's right to exist and they've got to kill because of it and they can't just remain in the west bank and gaza they need to sneak into israel and kill innocents now the reason i'm talking about this is that over the past few weeks, they've killed 19 Israelis, some with guns, some with knives, some with hatchets that they've used to uh, put into Israelis' heads. The elected government of Palestine had called for these murders. They called for them. They said, listen, go into Israel, use hatchets, and kill Israelis. This is what the government has allowed. You don't hear anybody in the world saying, hey, 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 you want to be a state? You want us to care about you? Well, you can't have your government calling for terrorists to sneak into Israel and kill innocents. But the world is silent about it. They don't say a thing about it. And when these murders occurred, the very government of the Palestinians celebrates it. They hand out candy in the street. Now, there's a second government in Palestine as well. They do virtually nothing to stop the terrorists from entering Israel. As I said, they let the armed. uh, terrorists just wander around shooting in the middle of streets. Imagine this. Would you want this as a country next to you where the government just allows uh, armed terrorists to just with automatic weapons to just shoot in the street and sneak into another country? Of course you wouldn't want that as your neighbor. But nobody, the world doesn't say, listen, stop. We can't allow this. This is madness. 
And not only that, not only do they do nothing to stop the terrorists, but they also pay the terrorist families if they're killed or imprisoned by Israel. They give them money. It's called pay for slay. And the terrorists are basically given an incentive to uh, murder people. This is important because it doesn't just apply to Israel. You're saying, Jesus, why is this guy talking about Israel again? It's because it's a bigger picture. It's a global problem. It's not just Israel. They're allowing it there. They're allowing radical Islam to infect all parts of society with the same response of looking the other way. Israel had to go into this Janine, this area, this terrorist nest, and they had to arrest the terrorists because they were all coming from there and killing 19 Israelis, as I said, over the past couple of months. Now, naturally, a firefight broke out between Israeli forces and the terrorists who were shooting their weapons like mental patients. They're throwing bombs at them, Molotov cocktails. An unarmed Israeli paramedic was killed during the clash. Of course, you heard nothing about that. Unarmed, you know, certainly wearing uh, identification, a vest to show that this was not a combatant, but instead was just a, a, a paramedic. Uh, that guy got killed. You didn't hear a single thing about it, except if you're living inside Israel. The world doesn't care about it. You didn't hear a thing about it. But someone else was killed, and that's all you heard about. A reporter for Al Jazeera. I mean, we're literally losing our fucking minds over a reporter who was caught in the crossfire in a terror enclave who worked for Al Jazeera. That's the state-owned news network operating in Qatar. Al Jazeera, if you don't know, first became well-known uh, in America as it was the hand-picked network to broadcast Osama bin Laden's messages to the world. And they didn't just stop with bin Laden. They also provide a platform for some of the worst terrorists in the world, which, which wouldn't be so bad if they didn't support the terrorists. It's one thing to give them a platform to speak. That's bad. But they encourage the terrorism. They praise these terrorists. They interviewed the leader of Hamas, and during the interview, he threatened the Israel with terror attacks and promised to kidnap soldiers. They hosted a podcast glorifying uh, the Iranian general Soleimani, the leader of their terror group, the Revolutionary Guard, who's responsible for killing thousands of people, Americans, Iranians, Syrians, Israelis, Saudis. Probably the worst he was, the worst living terrorist on earth until the United States killed him. This podcast that was on Al Jazeera allowed a character who played the, the Soleimani person to have free reign to explain his support of terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and why he helped the Syrian president massacre his own people. This is what's on Al Jazeera. We're pretending that they're normal, that it's a news organization. It's not. Their, their news site carried a headline reading, Martyr Shot by Occupation Forces in the West Bank for Being Accused of Trying to Run Over Soldiers. That's how they reported a Palestinian terrorist who was shot while attempting to ram into Israeli soldiers with his car. Calling a murderous terrorist a martyr glorifies them. It just encourages more of the same terrorism. This is what Al Jazeera is. Al-Qaeda in Syria, the Taliban, Iranian terror proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, all of them are praised by Al Jazeera. This is not a media outlet. It is a terror supporter. A couple of years ago, they broadcast a Holocaust denial video that claimed that Jews exaggerated the scale of the genocide in order to establish Israel. That's a damnable lie. Their website had videos and interviews of terrorists and they're all supported and praised on Al Jazeera. A Sharia law expert uh, from the Qatari Ministry of Religious Endowments, can you imagine the brain trust that exists there, advocated the beating of women in an interview on the network, stating that, quote, they need to be subdued by muscles. This is on Al Jazeera, and that wasn't the first time they had this terrorist on. This is what they're calling for, and nobody calls it what it is. It's just ignored because we expect this. We expect this from these foul people. The station also broadcasted a religious program hosted by a, a Muslim Brotherhood cleric, a Hamas loyalist terror group, who had issued a fatwa riddled with uh, comments advocating suicide bomb attacks, 
and praised Adolf Hitler for punishing the Jews, that's on Al Jazeera's media platform. The media network they had been called a useful tool for Qatar's ruling elite, notorious for their sympathies with the Muslim Brotherhood, a terror group, and other terrorists and, and, and extremist groups. In 2017, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and Bahrain, they severed diplomatic ties with Qatar in order to pressure it to halt its alleged terrorism financing, that's what Qatar does, and to shut down the network because you're inciting violence against their people. That's how serious it is. And this is how sick this network is. They held a party for released Lebanese child killer Samir Kuntar. Okay, who was he? This party was held in Beirut. It was organized by Al Jazeera to honor Kuntar on the occasion of his release from an Israeli prison. He was hailed as a hero who carried out a brave military operation against Israel. And Kuntar thanked Al Jazeera for supporting him. Do you want to know what he did? He became famous for a brutal 1979 raid from Lebanon in which he snuck into Israel and he helped kidnap an Israeli family. He then smashed the skull of a four-year-old Israeli girl with his rifle butt, killing her. Three other Israelis, including the girl's father, were killed in the attack. He was eventually released after serving 29 years in prison in an exchange with Hezbollah for the bodies of two Israeli soldiers. Why Israel thinks that a body of a, of a dead soldier is worth releasing some homicidal Muslim terrorist maniac killer is beyond me. I understand that the body's important, but it's not as important as safeguarding the public. It's idiotic. Anyway, this maniac gets out of jail. He immediately takes on a senior terror leadership role, and he's praised by the presidents of Iran and Syria, the people that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib support. He organized terror attacks inside Israel, and eventually Israel had enough and killed him. This is what the Al Jazeera host said to him in honor of his birthday. Brother Samir, we would like to celebrate your birthday with you. You deserve even more than this. I think that 11,000 prisoners, if they can see this program now, are celebrating your birthday with you. Happy birthday, Brother Samir. Are you kidding me? All of this incitement by Al Jazeera is for one purpose, to get Israelis killed, to get any enemy of the Muslim Brotherhood killed. They even published an article claiming that Israel had opened the dams which flooded the Gaza Strip. Totally fake news, and they were forced to retract it. But this is what they do. It's all about incitement. So if you'll excuse me, I don't care that an Al Jazeera terror network reporter was killed in a firefight last week. In fact, I celebrate it. I don't care. It's time we stop again. As I discussed on another podcast, we have to try to stop expecting uh, that terrorists should get a pass just because that's all we ever expect from them. We just figure, listen, they're Muslim terrorists. They're never going to get any better. So let's just deal with the problem as is. Well, that's complete bullshit. They shouldn't be judged on a double standard. Everyone needs to be judged by the same standards. Nevertheless, regardless, after the shooting, the Palestinian leadership blamed the shooting of this terror network's reporter on, on Israel and refused to let Israel do an investigation of the body to see how she was killed. Even the Palestinian coroner who reviewed the reporter's body claimed that it was impossible to tell who shot her. Nobody cared. The world blamed Israel without any investigation being done, and the Palestinians refused to do a joint investigation of the shooting with Israel. The hysteria over her death was completely contrived. Nobody gives a shit about this woman in uh, the terrorists don't care about her. A, a critic of the Palestinian government in the West Bank was beaten to death by the Palestinian government. 18 people were arrested. There still hasn't been a trial. It occurred a couple of years ago. No one's willing to testify. These are the good leaders of the Palestinians, we were told. The Palestinian street complained about this for what, like an hour? Now they're silent about it. Unless Israel can be blamed about this accidental shooting of a reporter from a terrorist news network, they don't say a goddamn word. Human rights organizations released a report about the Palestinian leadership's persecution of journalists and activists in both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in an effort to basically quiet dissenters. 
The report documented more than 80 cases of torture and arbitrary arrests, some for, some for doing nothing more than writing a critical article on Facebook or for or belonging to the wrong student group or political movement. Journalists, political activists, students, demonstrators, they described being threatened, beaten, forced into painful stress positions for prolonged periods of time during uh, detention. Some of the detainees were ordered to provide access to their cell phones and their social media accounts. In Gaza, a journalist said that he was beaten and detained by Hamas's security forces for a Facebook post critical of the leadership. That was it. You can't even be a, a, a critic of the Palestinians. They're beating the shit out of these people. They're torturing them. They're murdering them. And there's no world outcry because everybody expects this from them. You know, the Palestinian Authority, the good terrorists, they're holding hundreds of dissidents in administrative detention without charge or trial. Palestinians don't care about it. The average person, if they can't blame it on Jews, they don't care. The journalists in the West Bank have provided, excuse me, have reported uh, about a brutal crackdown on their work. They've been held for days for simply taking photos of the Palestinian prime minister's convoy. You don't hear a word about any of this. The Palestinians freak out on camera about their rights being crushed by their own government? Absolutely not. Only when they can blame Israel and the world just falls for it. America just falls for it. They strap bombs onto children. They hide rockets under school. They brainwash kids to kill Israelis. But the only thing that gets them to clutch their pearls is that this terrorist uh, news network's reporter was accidentally shot. And no one even knows who shot her. But the world's already decided that Israel's to blame. There's more global noise over the shooting of this woman than there was about the 19 Israelis killed by Palestinian terrorists and the murders which forced Israel to go into this area and arrest the terrorists, which led to a firefight which killed this woman. No one cared about the 19 were dead. They only cared about the feelings of the terrorists. America barely said a word about it. But they care about this dead woman. Who gives a fuck about her? It's, but it's done by accident. Assuming that Israel even did it, most likely it was the terrorists who did it. And the propaganda, because this is what the Nazis did, and of course the Palestinians, their modern, the modern version of Nazis, they immediately started with the propaganda. Babies were named after this woman, Shireen. One was photographed wearing a press vest, onesie. A press vest onesie looked like the press vest that the dead reporter had on when she was killed. I mean, this is the kind of propaganda they're putting out. It's so obvious and so, so cynical and so disgusting. Banners were created blaming Israel for the death of a reporter. And of course, the Palestinians had no desire to find out who actually killed her. They refused to join investigation with Israel. They knew the world would go along with their claim that Israel did it. As I said, everything is propaganda. Propaganda. They, they're the people who openly celebrate Hitler. They name stores after them. They celebrate when Israeli children are murdered by terrorists and the world expects nothing from them. They get away with all of it. And only Israel can be blamed because people know that the Israelis are civilized and the Palestinians are degenerate savages. So, of course, they had a funeral for this reporter on Friday and naturally it had to be a propaganda event. No concern for the dead reporter who was, you know, just doing her job or her family. So everything, as I said, everything's propaganda. So before the funeral, 300 rioters arrived at the hospital uh, where the body was being held in Jerusalem and prevented the family members from loading the coffin onto the hearse to just bring it to the cemetery and bury her. Instead, the mob threatened to, to threaten the driver of the hearse and proceeded to carry, they stole the coffin. They carried the coffin on an unplanned procession to the cemetery by foot. Because, you know, you, if you're a Muslim terrorist, you got to carry coffins on the street. You got to scream. You got to let off uh, automatic rifles. You got to shoot. Because that's what Palestinian terrorists do. That's what all the Muslim terrorists do. They've got rifles draped across the coffin. I thought this was a, a, a reporter who's objective. Why are there rifles on her? coffin. The Israeli police idiotically were in coordination with the family to basically safeguard the mourners 
which was stupid. The mob refused instructions from the Israeli police as well as the reporter's family. And there was a European Union diplomat who was there, all trying to get these, this mob to stop. Naturally, the Israeli police tried to disperse the mob and prevent them from stealing the coffin so that the funeral could go on as planned. And during the riot that was instigated by the mob, glass bottles and other objects were thrown resulting in injury to mourners and to the Israeli police officers. And that's what was captured on the video that was seen throughout the world. Everything is propaganda. They don't show what occurred before. They don't talk about the fact that the coffin was stolen. They just show Israeli police beating back the people that had stolen the coffin. The coffin nearly dropped. The world is aghast and Israel's blamed. Naturally, our leftist uh, Secretary of State, Blinken, who, as I, as I speak right now, is fully bent over and spread for Iran, blamed Israel. The Muslim terror supporters in our Congress, Tlaib Omar and this uh, Alexandra O. Cortez Jimenez and Cory Bush, they blamed Israel. They didn't say a fucking word about the 19 Israelis that were killed or any other victim of Muslim terror. Bernie Sanders blamed Israel. It's crazy. You've heard so much about this dead reporter from Al Jazeera. Uh, over the last couple of days, you've heard more about it than you did about the Palestinian dissidents who were killed by their own government. And you hear more about this crap than you do about what's happening in the Ukraine. Is that even remotely comparable? Listen to what's going on in the Ukraine. It's pretty crazy. Evidence of rape, torture, killings by Russian forces and inflicted upon Ukrainian civilians, gang rapes committed at gunpoint. Rapes committed in front of children. According to Kiev police, more than 900 bodies of civilians were found in the Kiev region after Russian forces withdrew, most of them executed with their hands tied behind their backs. In the first month of the invasion, there was documentation of arbitrary detention in Russian-occupied territories of journalists. Remember, we care about journalists, of activists, of public officials, civil servants. On February 28th, Russian forces fired cluster munitions with rockets into at least three different residential areas in Kharkiv, killing at least nine civilians, injuring 37. The city's mayor said that four people were killed when they left a shelter to get water and a family of two parents and three children were burned alive in, the, in their car. The locations that were hit were residential buildings and a playground. On March 1st, just a couple of months ago, a shell damaged the boarding school for blind children. As of March 4th, civilians, including five children, had been killed in that region. Out of an initial population of 1.8 million, only 500,000 people remained by March 7th. On March 8th, Russian forces bombed the hospital in Izium, which was totally destroyed. A hospital! You don't hear about that. On March 18th, the number of civilians reportedly killed in that region exceeded 450. They're using weapons on heavily populated civilian areas. There were no military targets within 400 meters of these strikes. On March 4th, Russian forces killed three unarmed Ukrainian civilians who had just delivered dog food to a dog shelter. In another incident, Russian soldiers in an armored vehicle opened fire on civilians fleeing in cars. They killed a man, a woman, and two kids. Russian tanks were going down the streets, shooting randomly at house windows. On March 11th, 56 elderly people in an old age home uh, that had been intentionally fired upon were killed by a tank in the town of uh, Kremina. You don't hear about this stuff, do you? I'm telling you these atrocities because if you don't hear them from me, you're not going to hear about them. In April of 2022, about 25 girls and women between the ages of 14 to 24 were raped in Buka, a city of 28,000 people in the Ukraine. Witnesses claim these girls and women were locked in a basement for almost a month. Nine of them became pregnant. 18 mutilated bodies of murdered men, women, and children were found in a basement in a village in the Buka district. One of the interviewed Ukrainian soldiers stated that there was evidence of torture. Some had their ears cut off, their teeth pulled out. Come on. The New York Times reported that during the Russian occupation, snipers set up in high-rise buildings and shot at anyone that moved. The same report said that a Ukrainian woman was kidnapped by Russian soldiers 
kept in a cellar as a sex slave, and then executed. You don't hear about this shit. All you hear about is the poor Palestinian Al Jazeera reporter who was probably killed by Palestinians. They've had torture chambers they've found in a children's sanatorium. The basement contained bodies of five men with their hands tied behind their backs. Photos of the men with their hands tied behind their backs were posted on Facebook. Russian authorities have kidnapped more than 121,000 Ukrainian children and deported them to Russia. The parents of some of these kids were killed by the Russian military, and they've now drafted a law which would formalize the kidnappings by allowing Russians to adopt these children. You don't hear much about this, do you? And this is like a tiny fraction of the destruction caused by the Russians. On Friday, a Russian lawmaker stated, quote, by its statements about Russia as a cancer tumor, Poland encourages us to put it in first place in the line for denazification after the Ukraine. They're threatening Poland. Poland is a member of NATO, right? That means that if Russia invades Poland, World War III officially begins because we are obligated, pursuant to our NATO agreements, to fight Russia if they invade a NATO member. But no, you don't hear about this stuff. Instead, you hear about a dead reporter from the terror network, network that Israel may have mistakenly killed. That's more important than World War III? 12,000 Palestinians have been killed in wars with Israel since 1987. That's 35 years, 12,000. The vast majority were terrorists in wars started by the Palestinians. Numerous others were killed by Palestinians when they send their rockets and they, they fall short and they kill their own people. Or they use human shields to guard their terrorists and they're killed in order to, to create propaganda against Israel when they're killed. 12,000 in 35 years. About 4,000 Ukrainians have been killed by Russia in two months. 35,000 in, excuse me, 12,000 in 35 years and 4,000 in two months? And the Ukraine didn't ask for any of this war the way the Palestinians always do. Oh, and by the way, 23 journalists have been killed during the war in Ukraine. Have you heard about a single one of them? Not a single one, because you can't blame Israel. can't blame the Jews. Remember Daniel Pearl, the American reporter who had his head cut off in Pakistan solely for being a Jew? You know, remember that double standard? The killers of Daniel Pearl in Pakistan were released. There was no rioting, was there? Pakistan receives a, a billion dollars a year from America and more, and more money from Europe. There were no protests or riots about Daniel Pearl's killers being released. There was no one killed during rioting about that because there was no rioting. Israel offered to do a joint investigation with the Palestinians about this dead reporter. No, they wouldn't do it. Who, who's investigating the fact that Daniel Pearl's killers were released? This woman that was killed from Al Jazeera, Daniel Pearl, they're both reporters, right? They were both reporting from war zones, right? Why is it that nobody gives a shit about the fact that Daniel Pearl's killers were released? They weren't even punished hardly. But if you ask the world about the fact that this Al Jazeera reporter was killed by mistake, clearly, and no one even knows who did it, that's worse than Daniel Pearl getting his head cut off and being forced to tell the world on video that he was a Jew. Shame on the world. And what I'm talking about, and the reason I keep bringing this up every week, is because you can just look the other way and pretend that this double standard doesn't exist or it's not important. This double standard allows evil to triumph over good. And as long as we allow Muslim terrorists, right now it's Nakba Day, it's Catastrophe Day, all over the world for Palestinians where they're bemoaning the fact that they didn't kill uh, the Israelis when the Israeli state was created in 1948. They're in Tel Aviv right now beating people, in Tel Aviv and Israel, beating people that are holding Israeli flags inside Israel. It's allowed because this is what we expect from them. There's, we don't expect anything more from them. They're in Brooklyn right now calling for the genocide of Israelis. Nobody does a goddamn thing about it. 
because we expect it. We know that they're not any better than that. And as long as we continue to say that they're not any better and they can continue to act like animals, they're never going to be forced to become civilized and Muslim terror will become a problem that will only continue to grow. I know I keep talking about it. I know you're tired of hearing it. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen, but it's going to get you anyway. Just because you don't listen to me talk about it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Doesn't mean that it's not going to affect you. In a city where 9-11 occurred just a, a couple of decades ago, we've got Muslim terrorists openly calling for the genocide of another country in New York City, a mile from 9-11 where it occurred. How shameful we are to allow that now. Okay, I'm all talked out. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you have any feedback, go to beyondthelegallimit.com. Feel free to let me hear. Thank you. See you next week.